of 069 is really not a big difference. It's one degree. One degree of difference, whether you're heading as, if you're in an airplane and you're heading as 068 or 069. But you can see the difference if you're flying from San Francisco and on a heading of 069, you'll end up in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you fly from San Francisco on a heading of 068, you'll end up some 42 miles north of that in Baltimore. And while one degree of difference is really not a lot, uh, I mean, it's, as you look at that line there, and it's a line of basically showing the space between one degree, of the 360 degrees, just one degree difference. In fact, that line almost looks like one line for a long way, but eventually that line becomes, uh, you, you can see the space in between, and if you were to continue it out, it would go further and further and further, for, uh, farther apart, so over some 2,000, 3,000 miles, you end up 42 miles apart. But this illustration demonstrates how a slight change at the beginning can make a huge difference where you finish. And the reason why I'm using this is our opening illustration, because this is so true regarding our text. Our text today, these five verses, is considered one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Martin Luther, the reformer, who really wasn't shy about being certain. Martin Luther never had a problem with not being certain. But Martin Luther, who, who wasn't shy about being certain, uh, wrote this concerning this text, quote, This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant, unquote. Millard Erickson, who formerly taught at Southwestern and, and is a, uh, a noted uh, Southern Baptist theologian, calculated that there are 180 possible different uh, exegetical combinations in interpreting this text. You can come up with and, uh, 180 different possibilities of understanding this text. And that, that's quite a few. <laughs> that's quite a few. And what you say, well, what makes this passage so difficult? Well, let me, let me give you some things. First of all, there's at least eight text-critical issues. Now, a text-critical issue, as you know, uh, no, no, there, there's over 5,000 uh, existing uh, 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 Greek manuscripts. Some of them are full manuscripts of the New Testament. Some of them, the, 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 the smallest one is about that big. It's about that big. I think, I think it's P42. It's, it's about that big. And no two agree completely in every place. But when you have, and you have different families of manuscripts, and basically what that means is these manuscripts primarily came from this geographical location. These group of manuscripts primarily came from this geographical location. And so when you compare these different families of manuscripts, you find, you find eight at least eight text-critical issues where the wording is different or there's words... The, the words don't agree, or the words are in different order, or the pronouns are different, or different words are used. And so that's a lot. For that small of passage of Scripture, that's a lot of, of, of differences that you find there. Not only that, but you have grammatical problems. You have pronouns that you can't... It, it, it's not certain uh, what, what, it's antecedent, what the antecedents are. Uh, what, what's this referring to? Or uh, is it referring to this before? Is it referring to this after? Or is it not referring to anything at all? And so you have that that you have to deal with. There's also lexical uncertainties. Again, words have wide range of meanings. If you've taken any foreign language, you know that there's no such thing as one word corresponding exactly for another word. I mean, you take our English word trunk. What am I talking about? If I just said trunk, 
tell me, I mean, am I talking about what an elephant has? Am I talking about what you got in your, what, what, what you have in your, your attic that's full of old clothes? Am I talking about what's at the back of your car uh, if, you've got a, if you've got a sedan? I mean, what do I, what do I mean when I say the word trunk? There's a big domain, and, and so you have some, some of the words that are being here, there's a, there's a wide range of domain, and depending upon where you fall on that can affect how you interpret the passage of Scripture. Not only that, but there's also genre or type of literature. Uh, if you have an ESV Bible, those verses are probably set off and show as poetry. Uh, just like if, you, if you've got a, I'm, I'm sorry, ESV, if you've got a net Bible, if you've got a net Bible, those verses are set off as poetry. Uh, they're they're, they're kind of indented, and they, they believe that, that what is here is, is, is poetry. It was an possibly, possibly an early apostolic creed, a way that they remembered things. The ESV Bible doesn't show it that way. It shows it as just being narrative kind or, or uh, epistolary literature. So is, is verse 18 poetry? Is verse 18 not poetry? Uh, not only that, but then you also have uh, uh, things, uh, and that affects, by the way, whether or not you, if you look at the text again, uh, in fact, if you drop down there at verse 18, he says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If it's not poetry, then you have to translate it that way. Made a made, uh, made, uh, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. But if it's poetry, you have, you have more leeway, just like in our poetry. Uh, you have leeway in how you can use words. And so it could possibly be being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And, and then is Spirit capital S or not capital S? Greek text doesn't tell you. you, you like our English, when we capitalize something, we have a capital letter. The Greek manuscripts were either all capitals or they were all lowercase letters. Uh, so there's, you don't have a capital in there. So is this talking about the Holy Spirit? Is it talking about Jesus' Spirit? Or is it talking about a realm? Uh, how do you interpret that? How, how do you go about dealing with that? Uh, also, uh, you have an historical interpretation. Uh, the early church viewed this passage as one of the ways in which they defended the view that when Jesus died, he spent three days in Hades. And he preached to the prisoners there in Hades. And then he empties out Hades. And so you have this descent into Hades. And, and, and for a long time, the church held to that. And still, it's still a popular view today. Not as much as it used to be, but it's still a popular view that Jesus spent three days in Hades preaching to whoever the spirits in prison were in, in, in doing that. That's, that's the historical uh, interpretation of this passage. Then there's also exe exegetical questions. As you read the passage, you have questions like this. Where did Christ go? Where did he go? You know, it, it says here uh, that, that uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Where in the world is that? Where, where did he go? When did he go? When, when did this happen? Did this happen, uh, right, did this happen between the crucifixion and the ascension? Or, or did it happen after the ascension? Or was it an aspect of his ascension? Where, where, when did he go? To whom did he speak? Who exactly, who exactly are these, these folks that he's speaking to? And also, by what means did he speak? When, when, it said, when the word is translated there, and it talks about that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that could either be talking about words, or it could be talking about actions. That he, he made a proclamation by what he did. His, his actions proclaimed something. Or was it actually that he spoke something? 
not only that, uh, who are the spirits? Who are these spirits? Are they, are they, are they individuals? Are they people? Or are they angels? Uh, who, who are these spirits? Uh, what impact, if any, do Jewish images and traditions have upon this text? Uh, uh, he, uh, is uh, the book of First Enoch, which was a, I like the word pseudepigraphical. Uh, I just, I don't know why, I just like saying it, you know, I, I don't know why, I guess because pig's in there, I don't know. But, but anyhow, uh, the idea that, that uh, is, is like, like it's Jude seems to do, that he quotes from a, 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 a document of First Enoch, which is not part of Scripture, but was considered part of Jewish tradition. Why is Noah mentioned? Why in the world does he mention Noah? As he's talking about unjust suffering, why in the world does he mention Noah at all? Why is Noah mentioned in this passage of Scripture? And in what sense does baptism save us? Because he makes, he makes the statement there in the text. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. But baptism does save us. In what way? In what way does baptism save us? These are some of the things that you have to work through in order to understand what this text is teaching. Which, again, is why Martin Luther said, I still don't know what the apostle meant when he wrote this. So, do we just kind of say, you know what, y'all, let's just skip these five verses and let's just jump to chapter 4 and verse 1. You know, Let's just jump to chapter 4 and verse 1. What do we do? How, with all this ambiguity, with this seeming, seemingly complexity... How do we approach this passage of Scripture? Well, the first thing we have to do as we approach this passage of Scripture is we have to approach it with humility. With humility. Nobody, nobody can be 100% certain of however they interpret this. Nobody can. With over 180 possibilities, if that's a correct estimation, nobody, nobody only Jesus, the Holy Spirit, nobody else on this earth can be 100% certain about what this text teaches. So we do the best we can. We do the best we can in trying to understand this passage of Scripture, and we do the best we can to try to make sure that we're accurately handling it and we can, so that we can confidently say, to the best of my ability, this is what I believe this passage of Scripture is teaching us. But in order to do that, we have to strive for consistency. Again, that's why I opened up, my, my, my fingers do this, so I can do the one degree thing. Real, I mean, they, they don't go straight together. Your fingers probably go straight together. Mine, go, mine point like this, you know, which way are we going? That way, you know. Uh, uh, so, so how do you, that one degree of separation makes a huge difference. Th this one degree rippling effect because how you interpret whether or not it's poetry can affect one thing, whether it's in the Spirit or by the Spirit, whether the Spirit is a capital S or not, uh, whether or not uh, First Enoch plays any role in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture, uh, whether or not you believe that Christ descended, what's taking place, was the proclamation uh, uh, one of deeds or was it one of words? Whatever you come to, it's like dominoes. If you hold to this here, then, it, then you've got to hold to this down here. There's a rippling effect. There's a domino effect. Whatever I hold to here, then consistently I've got to hold to it down here. And so that, that you, there's, you've got to strive for consistency. You've got to recognize that if, this, if I say this, then this is what I'm saying this means later on in the passage. You, you've got to hold to that. 
Not only that, but also this passage has ripples influencing how you interpret other passages of Scripture. How you interpret this passage of Scripture will have an influence on how you ter- interpret Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. You say, what's the big deal about Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8? Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is where it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they cohabitated with them and they produced giants. So are, are the sons of God the line of Enoch and the daughters, uh, and, and, and the, and the uh, I'm sorry, are the sons of God uh, the line of Seth and the daughters of, of, of men uh, the line of, of, of Cain? Or are the sons of God angels? where you have angels cohabitating with women and the offspring that they produced? Or are they men who are just demon-possessed, controlled by, by the Spirit? So, so you have this age of like these, you know, every, everybody's fascinated with, you know, what, what, all the superhero stuff. What's it called? The, uh, you know, the, all the superhero stuff. That, I'm sorry? Yeah, Marvel and, yeah, and, and all that stuff, you know? And, and, and so, but it, it would seem that like this time of error here is when you have these, these supermen, these superwomen with these superpowers. So how, how you interpret this text is going to influence how you look at Genesis 6. Not only is it going to influence how you look at Genesis 6, it's going to look at how you deal with Jude 6 and 7. Uh, in fact, just, just, just turn to Jude. It's just a couple books over. Just look at the book of Jude and look at verses 6 and 7. 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, is that talking about them rebelling from heaven? Or is it talking about them uh, changing, uh, rebelling in the sense that now they start to cohabitate with women? He says that they left their proper dwelling. Let me find my place. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, he continues there in verse 7 and says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, likewise indulge in sexual immorality, which would seem to indicate what he's talking about in verse 6, has something to do with sexual in- immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, which would seem like it would indicate what's going on in verse 6, is unnatural desire, serves an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Not only in Jude verses 6 and 7, but also Jude 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we have Enoch here. And so it affects how you view that passage of Scripture. It also affects how you view Ephesians chapter 4. In verses 8 and 9. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9, we read this. Uh, Therefore it says, uh, well, I'm starting verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Is it talking about hell? Is it not talking about hell? What, what is this? So is it talking about Jesus descending and preaching to the Spirit? So how you deal with this passage is also going to affect to be consistent on these other passages as well. So the third thing is we, 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 humility. We strive for consistency. If we hold to one thing here, we've got to carry it out. But also we can't get lost in the weeds. We can't get lost in the weeds. It's going to be real easy as we work our way through this text 
to get so caught up in all these different things, these 180 possible, un- and we're not going to go through the 180 possible understandings, but to go through all these possible understandings of what's taking place that we miss out, that we miss out on why Peter is writing this. Because even, even if this text is more obscure than we'd like it to be, even if we look at it and say, man, I, this is the best I can do, but I'm still not real certain about this. Even if this text is more obscure than we would like, two points are certain. Two points are certain about this text. The first point is this. This passage, verses 18 through 22, definitely is linked to the previous section. The first two words of verse 18 are hatai kai, which means simply this, because also, or because and. So when you look at verse 17, verse 17 uh, if we go back to 1 Peter, verse 17 says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better, for su- it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, because, because also Jesus also suffered. It's linked. Whatever is going on in this passage, it is linked to verse 17 where where Peter is giving us the reason and arguing the reasons for the claim made in verse 17. The claim in verse 17 is this. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And it's God's will for us to suffer for doing good. It's God's will for us to do the right thing even if that means we suffer experience unjust suffering. And verse 18 then begins, because also Christ also suffered. Here's the reasons that we are certain of. These verses give us the reasons why it is better for us to suffer, to experience unjust suffering when we're doing the right thing. But also the second thing is this, is that unjust suffering is not the tragedy or defeat it appears to be. If and when we suffer unjustly, the world will see it as a great defeat. The world will see it as a tragedy. But it is, it is it, what, how it appears to this world, how it might appear to us circumstantially, is a false understanding of what is really going on. It's a false understanding. Why is it better to suffer unjustly for doing good than for doing evil? Unjust suffering identifies us with Christ. Unjust suffering identifies us with Christ. And in Christ, we are not victims of unjust suffering, but rather victors over unjust suffering. And even if that suffering leads to death, death is not the final word. Death is not the final word of any unjust. If any of our brothers and sisters in China are put to death, or North Korea are put to death, or in any majority Muslim-led country that is under Muslim law is put to death, it's not the final word. It's not the final word. Now, Our journey through this uh, pericope, these five verses, is going to be thorough and methodical. 
we're going to take our time. Because of all the stuff that's there, we're going to take our time. And it's going to, but as we take our time through this, it's going to enable us, it's going to strengthen us, not only for us, but maybe in helping other people to, to face unjust suffering with certainty and hope. Because we're going to know what this text has to say. We're going to understand the reasons that Peter is giving to us why it is better to suffer unjustly for doing good. And so I, I'm hoping we get through what I've got in my notes today. If, we, if I look at the time and I think, you know what, we'll, we'll shut her down, okay? Right now is not the time, okay? But, 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 but we'll, sh- we'll shut it down. But we're going we're gonna to work our way through this and, and hopefully be an encouragement to you. So this morning, our, our, our focus is on verse 18. As we examine how Christ unjustly suffered. What, what is Peter saying about Christ's unjust suffering in verse 18? And how our unjust suffering identifies us with him. So, unjust suffering for doing good is better because Jesus' suffering was unjust. Look at verse 18 again. And again, I think this is poetry. So I'm just saying, and, and we're going to take this, you know, sonnet by sonnet. Phrase by phrase. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, as we've made our way through 1 Peter, this is the third Christological passage in 1 Peter. Uh, the second passage, it, go, go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 22. Chapter 2 and verse 22 begins the second uh, Christological passage where he, he focuses on Christ. And by the way, all three of these passages deal with the suffering uh, of Christ. Look at verse 22. When he was reviled... He did not, I'm sorry, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This second passage, the second passage, emphasized the redeeming power of Christ. When we looked at this passage, we made this statement: If Jesus had not suffered unjustly, you and I would have no hope. He suffered unjustly. If he did not suffer, I thank God for the unjust suffering of Jesus. Because if he had not suffered unjustly, you and I would have no hope. You and I would have no hope. There was purpose in his unjust suffering. He, again, the, the, the text there in verse 22, he committed no sin. He committed no sin. Yet he was put on that cross. And so that second passage emphasizes the redeeming power of Christ unjust suffering, the unjust suffering of Christ, if we can use this phraseology, released his redeeming power. Because he suffered, without his unjust suffering, you and I have no hope of redemption. This passage highlights the conquering power of his unjust suffering through his resurrection and ascension. His death reveals to us his, in his unjust suffering, his death from his unjust suffering redeems us. His resurrection and ascension after his unjust suffering enables us to have power. Power and hope and courage. So, 
the verse, it begins by stating clearly that Jesus' suffering was a once-for-all suffering. When you look at the text again, for Christ also suffered, the word once there can be translated once for all. For Christ also suffered once for all for sins. For sins. Now, what did verse chapter 2 and verse 22 say? It says, he committed no sin. He committed no sin. So whose sin is he suffering for? He committed no sin. So it states that his suffering was once for all. It's a never-to-be-repeated experience, and it's on account of sins. But he did good. He, he never sinned. He never sinned. But yet his suffering was due to sins. Whose sins? The sins of others. If somebody murders somebody, and you sit on the jury, and the judge decides you're going to go get the needle instead of the guy who's been convicted, we all know that's not just. Why should I pay for the sins of that person? I didn't do it. And yet Jesus suffers for our sins, for our sins. But yet, here's what Peter is saying here. That our unjust suffering for doing good identifies us openly with Christ. Jesus suffered. He was doing good, yet he suffered unjustly. He was suffering for things he did not do. And when you and I as believers, or when our brothers and sisters in other places suffer unjustly, they are doing good, they are doing the right thing, but they are suffering because of it. They are being persecuted because of that. When they do that, when they experience that, they have openly identified themselves with Jesus Christ because that's exactly why he suffered. He suffered unjustly. Unjustly. He was doing good, yet he suffered for the sins of others. We are doing good, but yet we are suffering because of other people's sins because they hate the Christ they, 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 they hate Christianity, and so they're going to take it out on us. And we are suffering unjustly for the sins of other people. Not in the same way that Christ did, but we are still identifying. We are suffering, in a sense, in the same way. And here's the, here's the point. If we suffer like he suffered, it also places us on the same path of victory that he walked, on the same path of honor that he walked, and on the same path of glory that he receives. If I suffer with him, I'm also going, as as Paul says, I'm going to reign with him. If I suffer with him, I'm going to experience his glory. Not the same glory, but his glory is going to be shared with me. If I suffer with him, I experience the same victory over suffering that he experiences. So Peter says, why, why, when, when God... When, when, we, when we're given a choice to do right and suffer because of it, and we choose to do the right thing, even though we know we're going to suffer for it, and we know it's God's will. Why is it God's will? Because it places us, number one, on the same path that Jesus walked. The same path that Jesus walked. But Peter, in the next phrase, gives us the second reason. Jesus' suffering was vicarious. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust. 
Jesus suffered for the sake of others. He suffered for... I'm not going to pay the penalty of my sin. I'm not going to experience the wrath for my sins. Jesus suffered for me. Jesus suffered for my sake. He suffered for my sake. This phrase is actually Peter alluding to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. Let me read those for you there. He says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. We sang about this this morning. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for those who were not righteous. For those who were not righteous. Jesus' death, as you know, provided a substitutionary atonement for humanity. He died on behalf of us. He died also for our sake, which is something unique to him. It's something he alone met the qualifications to do that. However, like Christ, we can suffer for the sake of another. In fact, when we experience unjust suffering for doing good, we are suffering for the sake of Christ suffered in our place to pay for our penalty, died as our sin substitute, uh, made us acceptable to God. But when we experience unjust suffering, we are suffering for the sake of Christ in this way. Think about Think about Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus hates believers. He's standing there, to put it in our vernacular, he's standing there holding everybody's iPad and iPhone while everybody is stoning Stephen, okay? He's watching everybody's stuff to make sure those righteous people don't walk off with anything that doesn't belong to them, you know, as they're stoning Stephen. He goes, by his own testimony, he goes to the high priest and he gets basically warrants to drag people out of their houses, men and women, cause them to try to profane the name of Christ and bring them before the tribunal for even possibly death. That's Saul. That's Saul. And Saul, we all know his, his great, his great uh, 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 conversion on the road of Damascus. He's blinded by the light. Those that are with him see the light, but they don't hear the voice. And the voice says to him what? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who? Me, Christ says. It was Stephen that he watched. It was people he was pulling out. But Jesus is saying to him, every time you persecuted them, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. And every time we experience unjust suffering, they're not... We're, we're, just, we're just the nearest thing. It's like the person that comes home and he's, you know, he's gotten chewed out by his boss... He walks in, and, and his, his wife's not real happy with him, or if it's a woman coming in, the husband's not real happy with him, and they end up taking it out on the, the cat. I like dogs. So they end up taking it out on the cat, you know. Kick the cat clear across the room, you know. 
Oh, cats got lying lives, you know. But, okay, uh, no, that's not what I mean. Okay, but, but anyhow, you know, so you're taking, uh, who you're really mad at is not the cat. You're angry at your spouse or you're angry at your boss. And Jesus is saying, who, Paul, who, who Saul of Tarsus is really mad at is not these believers, but the truth of who Christ is. And so when we suffer unjustly, just like Christ suffered for the sake of others, we suffer for the sake of Christ. We're following in His steps. That's why. That's why it's good and it's better to suffer in doing the right thing than in doing the wrong. But Peter makes a, good, a third point. Jesus' suffering was purposeful. Again, look at our text. Now, who is there to... I'm sorry, gosh, let me jump down to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. His suffering was unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. His suffering was vicarious. That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. It's a henna clause. First word is... Henna, which tells us it's a purpose. This phrase is a henna clause indicating the purpose, the purpose for Christ's suffering. What's the purpose for Christ's suffering? What's the purpose for Christ's suffering unjustly? What's the purpose for Christ's suffering on the sake of others? The purpose is this, that he might bring us to God. When Peter makes this statement, he creates a whole new metaphor with this unusual expression. This expression, it, you find similar ways of this expression in the Old Testament that describe animals being led uh, to God for sacrifice. The, the phrase that's used here is, is similar to that. Or it, it, it speaks of bringing a person to trial or a person to court. Paul uses a similar phrase uh, to describe having access to God. In fact, the word that, 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 that's translated here, bring us, that he might bring us, is also the, one of the other ways of translating that word is access. And Paul uses it to talk about that we have access to God. Because of Christ's death, because of his resurrection, because of his ascension, we have access to God. We can go boldly into, the, into God. You can go any time of the day or night with any problem, any situation, any struggle, any temptation, any trial, any time you have act. You don't have to call so... Again, it's not wrong calling so-and-so to get comfort, but you can go directly to God, directly into His presence. You don't have to knock on the door. You don't have to get an appointment. You don't have to schedule a time when you can, when you can have a Zoom meeting or FaceTime. You have direct access anytime, 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, 366 when it's leap year. Anytime. That's one where how this word is used. But Peter uses it in a totally different way. Peter speaks of Christ actively leading us to God by means of his suffering. His suffering has a redemptive purpose. The picture is Jesus taking us by the hand and leading us across the territory of the enemy into the presence of the Father who called us. That Jesus takes us, because of his suffering, his suffering takes us by the hand 
and leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, the, 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 the territory of our enemies, and brings us to God. His suffering does that. His suffering takes us by the hand and leads us to God. That's the word picture here. Now, our unjust suffering has the same potential of purpose to offer our persecutors our hand, leading them to the one who can lead them to the Father. Now, we use the illustration of Saul of Tarsus, right? Acts chapter 6 through chapter 7. Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. He watches how Stephen responds. He hears Stephen say, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. He hears the message that is preached. And I'm convinced Paul never gets over it. In fact, Paul mentions and talks about the fact that he was there. We know he was there because Paul tells us. Acts tells us, but Paul also tells us as well that he was there. And I don't think he ever got over that. I think that, along with how some other believers responded when he was dragging them away to go before the Sanhedrin, that he watched how they suffered. And I think part of him coming to Christ was made way because of the suffering of those believers that led him there. And God tells him, in fact, when he sees Cornelius, Cornelius says, you need to know how much great suffering you're going to do for God. And he'd seen how these others had suffered. They were his templates on how he was going to have to suffer. And so when Paul is suffering, we, we see him suffering well when he experienced unjust suffering. We hear, we hear him and Silas at midnight singing there in the jail. We see how he writes to the Corinthians and bears open his heart about what he's gone through. Not to brag or to boast, but to, to encourage and strengthen them. And see, our unjust suffering has the same thing for our persecution. How many stories have we read throughout Christian history about pe- the very people that persecuted our brothers and sisters in Christ, even to the point of death, because of what they witnessed, turned around and became believers themselves. Became believers themselves. And, and, and Peter is letting us know that our unjust suffering has a purpose. It has, it has the potential of taking even those who are persecuting us by the hand through our suffering and leading them to Christ who gives them access through His suffering to the Father. We bring them to the, our suffering brings them to Christ. Christ's suffering brings them to, to the Father. It's purposeful. It's purposeful. And then finally... Jesus' suffering was victorious. Again, look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. His suffering's unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. It's vicarious. That, or in order that he might bring us to God, it's purposeful. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. And we're, we're gonna, in the Spirit, we're going to focus on that. Because... We're going to spend much more time next week on that last little phrase. That's where we'll begin at, Lord willing, next week with that last phrase. But for now, what we'll say about this verse is this, that Peter's contrasting the death and the resurrection of Christ. He was put to death, and he was made alive. He was put to death, 
but he was made alive. The death and the resurrection. Christ's unjust suffering was a suffering that led to death. But death did not destroy him. For Christ, death did not have the final word. I remember when I was um, coming to check out the school at Arlington, my pastor, there in Pickwell, we went to the May Fellowship. So this would have been May of 76. And there was a pastor in Fort Worth that preached, J.W. Briscoe. And he was preaching on the resurrection. And Brother Briscoe, I mean, he could, he could rock the house. I mean, he could rock the house. And he was going, he was preaching, and he would talk about stuff, but he, then he would saw, but early on Sunday morning. And then he'd talk a little bit more. But early on Sunday morning. He'd talk a little bit more. But early on Sunday morning. And finally, when, I mean, you're ready to hoop and hop and shout and jump and resurrect yourself up into heaven early on Sunday morning he came out of that grave he came out of that grave death did not have the final word and neither does death have the final word in our unjust suffering because even if we suffer unto death because of our identification with Christ my persecution, your persecution, the persecution of our brothers and sisters, all of their unjust suffering, even if fatal, is never, never, never final. They can take everything I own, but it's not final. They can impoverish me, but it's not final. They can imprison me, but it's not final. I can end up in an infirmary, it's not final. It's not final. And the reason why it's not final is because of the fact when you put to death in the flesh, it ain't alive in the spirit. He went in that grave, but he came out. He came out. These are the reasons why it is God's will for us to do what is right even if that means we suffer unjustly. Even if it means we suffer unjustly. We, if you're a child of God, you are one with Christ. Christ not only identifies with you, but you have an opportunity through unjust suffering to identify with Him. Jesus' suffering was unjust so is ours. We can experience unjust suffering. Jesus' suffering was for the sake of others. But our unjust suffering when we follow His path is for the sake of Christ. Jesus' unjust suffering was purposeful to take our hands and to lead us by His suffering to God. Our suffering, unjust suffering, can be purposeful that God can use our suffering to take those who persecute us or those who are watching us being persecuted by the hand and bring them to Christ who brings them to God. And Jesus' suffering was victorious. And our unjust suffering is victorious. 
Because death is not the final word for us also. Jesus' suffering was, and so is ours. Unjust suffering need not be feared. We don't have to wring our hands like everybody else does. Now, doesn't mean we're not concerned. Doesn't mean we, we, we hope it doesn't happen. Doesn't mean we don't pray that God would deliver us. I don't want to happen to us what, what's happening in other countries. I don't want it happening to them. But if it does, if it does, I don't have to be afraid. Because it is not the final word. Our identification with Christ when we suffer for doing good may make us appear to those around us even we might even think this way as victims but in actuality it places us on the same path to victory on the same path to honor on the same path to glory that was traveled by our Savior we are not victims to be pitied. We are victors. And this isn't some pie-in-the-sky prosperity theology crap. It's what verse 18 is teaching us. We are not victims to be pitied. We are victors. We are those, as Paul says in Romans, who are more than conquerors through him God help us to not only live out our identity of who we are in Christ, but be willing to identify with Him if unjust suffering should be part of God's will for our lives. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, for this text and for what it teaches us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and help in our brothers and sisters that are already experiencing this. Lord, who are already going through this unjust suffering. Lord, encourage their heart. Help us to pray for them. Lord, we pray, first of all, for their deliverance. Father, that you would, you would take circumstances and, and make them in such a way that they, wouldn't have, they would not have to experience these things. It grieves your heart. But Father, if, if they do so, the choices between suffering and doing what's right, Lord, it's your will that we do the right thing even if it means suffering. Lord, to do so, there's, there's reasons why. There, there, we, we need to look beyond what's happening in the moment. And, look at, and look, as we look at what's happening in the moment, that even what's happening in the moment, is our, we are identifying ourselves with Christ. We are, we are identifying ourselves that he, suffering the same way He did unjustly. Suffering for the sake of others. We're suffering for the sake of Christ. Lord, we, 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 we take these truths and we, we apply them to our lives. And our, our suffering has a purpose. It has the opportunity of, uh, of bringing others to you. And even if it doesn't, Father, our, our suffering is not final. We're not victims. We're victors. So even if it doesn't have an effect upon the people that watch us or the people that persecute us, it does have an effect when we stand before you and we experience the, the victory and the honor and the, and the glory and Christ shares that with us because we chose to suffer with him Father encourage our hearts it's not so much prevalent in this country but it's, it seems like it's becoming 
more and more of a possibility. We, we see it, as Jubal mentioned a couple weeks ago, we see it in Canada, we, we see it in other places, Lord, and, and Lord, it, it, it's probably not long till it happens here, and I hope it doesn't. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help these truths to be stamped into our minds and our hearts and our thinking and, and the persecution that, and the, and the, 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 that we do face today or the, the laughter or the, the ridicule, Lord, that, that we'll be willing to stand up to that. We'll be willing, Lord, not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to, um, not to be jerks, Father, to, to not be ashamed of who we are in Christ. So encourage us, strengthen us, give us wisdom in how that, what that looks like. Help us as we continue to, to um, make our way through this text. And, and Lord, help us to, even in our disagreements, Lord, that we may have as we work our way through it, to, to encourage and strengthen. Remember the two big truths that this text relates and tells us and it helps explain to us why. Why we don't need to fear unjust suffering. And encourages us that even if it means death, it's not final. We're, we're victors. We're victors in Christ. So help us today. Speak to our hearts today. Encourage us in our faithfulness to you. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We know we don't have an altar call. We do have an invitation. We want to encourage you. If you don't know Christ, His suffering is what enables you to have access to the Father. And if you don't know Him, that, that's the only way you're going to know Him. You're not going to know Him through church membership. You're not going to know Him, have access to Him just simply because you've been baptized or you've walked an aisle. You have access to Him because you've put your faith and trust in Him. You've, you, you've come to Him in repentance and faith. And through that repentance and faith, by the grace of God, repentance and faith, God even gives you the ability to do that. You, you have a relationship with Him. And if you're not certain about that, we'd love to talk with you after the services. For those of us who are believers, that God would help these truths, that we, that we would be, we'd be not ashamed of the gospel, that we wouldn't allow the ridicule of others to, to dictate us and to rule us. And that we'll be wise as serpents harm, uh, uh, and harmless as doves. That we'll not long for persecution, that we'll pray for deliverance, but be ready if persecution comes. As we looked at the text last week, if, if God wills. It's, it's not a certainty, but it's probable. We're going to give you time to talk with your Lord and, and then we'll, we'll complete our service this morning.